So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code PREPARED22. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. Chinese Cooking Demystified is one of my favorite YouTube channels. Each week, Stephanie Lee and Chris Thomas, a married couple based out of Foshan, walk their 500,000 subscribers through a new Chinese recipe or cooking technique. They've covered everything from a Sichuan tofu rice and lots of ji to homemade tang yuar and my personal favorite, jin juji, Cantonese dry roast chicken. They're part of a new generation of YouTube food creators, broadening the world's palates far beyond the Panda Kitchen offerings. Welcome to China Talk YouTube. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hello, everybody. So you two in past videos have talked about how bad most English language resources are for Chinese cooking and how this was part of your motivation for starting channel in the first place. Um, what gives? Why do cookbooks think they can get away with, you know, not even not authentic, but not particularly well-tested Chinese, Chinese recipes in a way they wouldn't dare to with a apple pie or what have you? I mean, it's gotten a lot better. Right. You know, I would say even in the four years since we've started, I would say that the general knowledge base that's out there has definitely improved. And I think part of that is a lot more China based creators are on YouTube and kind of getting that knowledge out there. But I would say why do certain ostensibly serious resources not know that much about Chinese cooking. Honestly, I think it's just a standards problem. I think that if you aren't very familiar with the cuisine, then you're more likely to just whip up some kind of like mediocre stir fry and think that that's good enough. And I think lack of exposure to maybe many of the English sources recipes are targeting non-Chinese audience and the non-Chinese audience, their only exposure is more like maybe just the takeout. The Chinese audience, they may, you know, they already know how to make Chinese food, so they don't, you know, really need to learn too much. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, like the, the market, the target audience, like also the market standard was lower. And also there's like really not much other information that you can get about Chinese food. So people, the people that like, if they don't know something else exists that they just don't know. Right. So, yeah, I think another problem is actually, I feel like a lot of cooking resources within the West are really research, reaching for universals, basically an almost and a concept where all cooking is basically the same. It's the same techniques. It's the same fundamental ideas. But it's just, you know, with a different accent. Whereas, really, if you look at the entire body of cooking, whether it's within China or India or Thailand or wherever it is, that it's really more like a completely different language. That you're really looking at an entire different system and approach to cooking. And I feel like within a lot of sources that there's almost a lack of imagination where people, they don't really 
they can't conceptualize that it's going to be something as radically different as it is. But it's really those differences that kind of make things interesting, in my opinion. Great. So let's go from there. So given that you two are sort of respecting the gap and like uniqueness that, you know, Chinese cooking in general, different regional uh, Chinese cooking in particular brings to the table, what are your principles in trying to convey that to your global audience? When we choose what to do, we would choose what kind of interests us first. We would choose things that we find interesting. And from that starting point and then find angles or perspective that others or a global audience or English sphere speakers would find that also interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the valuable things about having video as a medium, and I think that this is one of the reasons why YouTube's been an amazing platform for just cooking in general, is that when you're actually seeing somebody cook, when you're looking at the steps visually, that you can then kind of see and contextualize the difference, right? Where if you see somebody that's stir-frying, and you can see with your two eyes, okay, this is step one, step two, step three, then, I don't know, it's a lot clearer? I don't know if that makes sense. I think you're totally right. Kenji Lopez-Alt, someone both you and I uh, really appreciate in recent months, I think post-quarantine, has just taken to using a, putting a GoPro on his head and filming him cook dinner for his family. And the amount that I have learned just from watching someone in real time do all the steps and, you know, you see how he cuts his stuff up beforehand and the sequences and when the recipes say until it's done and he's like actually waiting until it's done and, and showing you when that moment is and why is just such a better learning experience, especially for a cuisine which you haven't necessarily eaten at a restaurant 10 times, right? I think you're completely right mm-hmm. here that um, video has a really important role to play in exposing people to the further reaches of, of Chinese cuisine. Yeah, and I mean, it's also one of those things where if you're kind of in a traditional sense, how do most people around the world know how to cook? Well, they see their parents or their family members, they see them cook, right? And then you mimic that. You know, that's really how cooking has been taught throughout generations. And it's only kind of this recent weird thing where people would read a book of recipes and use it as kind of like an instruction manual, like a technical manual for how to cook, right? That's a very kind of modern, unnatural way of cooking. So in some ways, video is kind of like taking us back a little bit, I think. So what have been some interesting things you've learned about your audience over the process of making this channel? I think we started to see our niche and core audience a little bit more than a year. It becomes more clear a little bit more than a year ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's more obviously since the Laogama video. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's like we starting to know our the kind of angle we want to take more, and we started to see our audience being either you know. People that been to China or lived here for a bit have like some kind of connection, know something about Chinese food, and they maybe go back. They wanna yeah. recreate the taste, and also people that's like serious food nerds. And I think one of the things that I feel like you know, especially for example, I think in the past year, 
is a lot of people, I think, are really interested in seeing exactly what you know the dishes mean within the context of a certain place's culture. For example, you just talked about you know Sichuan dohua fan, you know the tofu rice, where that's something that if you were on the coast, even like if you lived in Shanghai or you know even Guangdong, you know you could go years and years here without really knowing what Sichuan tofu rice is, the dohua fan. But like in the places where it's popular, it is a cultural institution. So I think that a lot of people, because this country is so big, because there's so much food, and because every single place is a little bit different than the last place, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, even if you know the country, you might not know something as granular as a specific dish. Um, I, I'll come back to the regional cuisines in, in one second. I, I know you have all this, like, crazy YouTube analytics in the back. Are there any, are there any <laughs> right, countries yeah. where you're just, like, surprisingly popular? Oh, that's specifically for, like, one. Yeah, dim sum chicken feet, right? Um, Germany? Yeah, Germany. It's a, it's a small number, but, I mean, the biggest ones is really, like, U.S., Canada. You know, we get, like, all the YouTube things, but, uh, yeah, it's an interesting breakdown where it's really kind of like our old, our older dim sum videos are very popular in Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore. So it seems like the southern... Like the more like Guangdongy food seems to resonate more in Southeast Asia. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, that's dim, fair. Dim sum specifically for at least for us because they also have you know like siu mai or like chicken feet or other dim sum there, but it's just a little bit different. So I guess like they would maybe sometimes also want to see how it's done, those kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's like a kind of interesting aspect for us to see that. In Southeast Asia, there's this kind of connection there. I think there's another interesting thing, specifically about dim sum videos, which is, I don't know if you've ever watched or even tried you know, any of those, like, really proper dim sum is no joke. It is really hard and very intense. And I think that, you know, even within a lot of Chinese language sources, a lot of videos or resources aren't necessarily willing to go the whole nine yards and teach you how it would basically be done at like a good chalo, like a good uh, Cantonese restaurant. And so, I mean, like for us, like we were really curious. We just wanted to do like the really proper one. And generally, if we're doing something like cha cha bao, the answer from basically everybody is like, oh, thanks for showing me this. I now know that I never want to try to make cha cha bao myself. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some people that are food nerds that want to do the really authentic cha cha bao, even though people that fail that recipe outnumber people that can do it like 10 to 1. But yeah, I mean, the guy, the one you did with your with your parent the other day of the the pomelo and you got to squeeze it five times and burn the edge and then shave it off i mean mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys you guys yeah. seem to really enjoy the ones that are real processes yes it's like well we kind of enjoy all but the more that's like intense and process or like difficult it's interest interesting in a way that it embodies a lot of cooking techniques and that's what kind of fascinating like oh people are okay they think 
like that. In when they look at an ingredient, this is like what they think about, what they want to do with it. I think that's where all a lot of the wisdom it's in cooking, and it's because it's so complex or difficult or very mafan, <laughs> very mafan to make that. Not necessarily like people are willing to do it at home, even so. Not maybe not many people know about the exact details in yeah. making it. But at the same time, I think like it has to be a mix for a channel, not only to give people you know some things like fried rice chicken that are a little bit more accessible at home, but also for us because honestly, I think we still have PTSD. From making uh, like the lanjo lamian, <laughs> my God, it is. It reached a point where for me, I just I can't do those things with my hands. Steph took over that one, and oh, it's it is difficult. So, what's your process for developing a recipe? You mentioned domestic platforms have varying qualities. I'm curious for your thoughts on Xiaochufang and your impression in general of like home cooking uh, lessons and the recipe ecosystem within China. When we begin with the channel, there are less good resources on the internet. Xia Chu Fang was one of the inter- resources that I would sometimes go to, but in general, the online recipe platform is very similar to all recipes. That yeah. it's like a really mix of good and bad, and not to be honest, not that many good recipes. There are like some creators are okay. And but thank thank God for Billy Billy actually, and also like TikTok, the Chinese version, and the surge and the huge success of this country cooking creators like Li Ziqi and like Dian Xiaoge that they started a trend of people from all over the country just started to theme their daily cooking in the village, like old people cooking, and that also there's Wang Gan, professional chefs teaches you how to cook in the kitchen. Like in the past two three years, I'll say there's a lot more good resources on. The internet, so on the Chinese cooking recipe spheres, it has improved a lot. But when it comes to like actual recipe researching, developing, it just involves reading a lot, like online reading so many things, including old cookbooks, old literatures, maybe interviews. Going all over the internet, watching a bunch of clips of people move from the village cooking. Maybe some chefs talking about it. For us, researching it's a kind of a comprehensive process. Yeah, I mean, like just also imagine if you were going to do the same thing with、uh, Western cooking or cooking in the U.S., right? So, how would you teach a Chinese audience, let's say, how to make gumbo? Yeah. Right. Now you could just go to all recipes. You could search gumbo. You could choose one. But a lot of those, and I think probably anybody from the New Orleans area would could probably tell you that there's a lot of garbage out there too. So you need to kind of have an eye and know, okay, what is reliable? Like what is actually going to be kind of like the proper dish? Yeah, it's a mix of old cookbooks. It's a mix of Uh, you know, going online, not only seeing what recipes are out there, but also seeing what the conversations like. 
how are people talking about it? What are local people saying like, oh, you need to include this bit in it? The frustration I have with using like the likes of Xia Chufang in the West, of course, is that every once in a while there's an ingredient that you can't get at your H Mart around the corner or what have you. And the the kind of extra level layer that you guys have to do on your videos is saying, okay, well, you can't get this, but you can probably get that, which is something that I get frustrated when I watch like a beautiful Wang Gong video seeing <laughs> so um can you compare a little bit the maybe aesthetics and philosophy of food youtube versus billy billy youtube are there any interesting differences you've seen in how creators think about making their content it's not that much of a difference actually when you think about it but billy billy maybe the recipe like actual cooking recipe per se it's a little bit less you will see more about like either the travels vlogger style of going around to eat and also the country cooking kind of just showing you the process but not like ex- tell you exactly how to cook it kind of thing it's a little bit more on billy billy and uh, we were also talking about like it seems like at least for like the bigger uh content creators on billy billy it's that the cooking the home cooking style things are slightly less than YouTube and yeah, like the quick think, and easy it's like less. Yeah, energy. that's right. That's like one of the things that I feel like is really huge on the English language internet. It's not a space that like we ourselves are personally in, but you know, basically things like quick and easy cooking. Things that are content that's basically teaching you, okay, this is how you can get a dish on the table fast for your family. And I feel like that kind of content is actually a lot less in China, right? Because it feels like people kind of already have that knowledge of how they can get dinner on the family for their or dinner on the table for their family. So there's a lot less of that kind of like quick and easy kind of style. And it's yeah, as Steph said, a lot more village cooking or this kind of thing. So let so let's come back to regional cuisines. Which ones do you think are relatively approachable for home cooks yet criminally underexplored in the West? I think the I, I would say Cantonese food. It's like the most approachable right. uh, cuisine for people to cook in the West because of ingredient requirements. Yeah, it's of, a lot less, and also the Chinese supermarkets generally carry Cantonese ingredients too. Then the other part of the question is the less known part, like which cuisine is like less known in the West or to the audience. I'll say Southwest. That's always like our like go-to answer. Minus Sichuan, like Southwest minus Sichuan, that would be the least known. What would your guys' fast casual Chipotle spin-off dish be to open a thousand, <laughs> you know, a, a thousand chain store all across the world? I think that if you were doing this in the United States, your fast casual thing would be a Sichuan noodle restaurant. A noodle bar. A noodle bar kind of thing. So uh, you could have basically like the classics, uh, Chongqing Xiaomian, Dandan noodles, MSG noodles, you know, these kinds of things. But you could probably do it kind of like a subway, right, where you can also choose your own toppings. And you could do everything from a centralized kitchen. Yeah, I think that would be the business idea. Someone out there should do it, really. And and how about your your high-end restaurant? High-end restaurant. 
I think for uh, we we doesn't talk about like that concept actually. Like we yeah, we always we we never yeah. We is, never really are high end restaurants good investments even? You know? No. Maybe it's a but, but, no, but no. you know, someone's gonna listen to the show and give you guys five million dollars to play around and do whatever you want with to open your. Um... If we were if we were trying to choose a cuisine to get a Michelin star, I I will do Yunnan. Yunnan's mm, like yeah. has like so many interesting things, ingredients that it's not even known about in China, and. There's that good mix, and you always, you know, it's it's the perfect cuisine for farm to table. <laughs> right. I don't know where you could get. Um, I mean, do they have like mushrooms in Seattle or something? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Well, you would have to source them, right? Yeah, you need to like. That's source why them. it would be so expensive. I think my answer, though, I think I would want to create a high end restaurant that would be just shushing food, simply because I would want the satisfaction of giving somebody, like, paying a bunch of money for a tasting menu, I'd want the satisfaction of making course number one to be steamed stinky tofu. <laughs> and I just want them to, like, have to deal with and process that. You know, you there's, know? This, there's this one restaurant in Beijing where you... It's like... This, I think it's like some Sichuan way of cooking uh, fish. And at the end, you get to walk out with this, like, entire bottle of spicy oil. And then you just get to take home and cook with it for the rest of the year. And I just think that's like a fascinating, like a fantastic way of, <laughs> of uh, uh, a fantastic take home gift for folks. Have you guys, have you guys come yeah. across this? I mean, yeah. I, I do really like, I do think that Shaoxing food, just thinking about it, is very underrated. Yeah, yeah like that kind of like Zhejiang kind of food. Yeah, it's like. It's not the Jiangnan area food or the Huayang food that people like often think about because that's like more like the Mandarin cuisine. Uh, what we're when we're talking about like Shaoxing food or Jiangnan food, it's the the locals, villages, common people food that not many people actually know about it. Or like when they think about that area, they are not thinking about what the locals eat. It's not like the the Shizitong kind of thing. Of course, they have that, but yeah, it's more like the Tu Cai kind of thing. Yeah, it's always kind of interesting, actually, the dynamic, the dynamic between, between what is the almost historical famous cuisine, kind of like the food that was traditionally eaten by the elites, and also the food that's eaten by the common people. Lots of times, you know, you'll go around China and you'll think, oh, okay, I have an understanding of what Jiangsu food is, let's say, right? But then you get there and you're like, oh, like, Yangzhou food is totally different than I, what I thought it was. Do you think of Chinese food as a form of soft power? Is there, are there broader implications for more of the world understanding and appreciating Chinese cuisine? There was actually, there was some blog article, and I forget exactly what it was, where somebody was basically just saying, China's greatest soft power is a bunch of people cooking stuff on YouTube. And it's kind <laughs> of true, right? You know, you have like Li Zixi is like enormous and so many people that like, you know, maybe would hate everything like the entire idea of the government and the country will just watch leads a chi and love them you know and yeah i mean sure it is i think that obviously you know culture is a form of soft power right you know rock and roll overthrew governments right i don't know I think I, I like the idea the other day when when we were listening to you know the the interview with you and Xiaowei you know, talking about when she writes about, you know, this village, 
people in village about China, and she used the word the word humanizing. I think that's a very good, I think perspective to look at uh, Chinese food or like this cooking content on YouTube or in English. It's that yeah, it's a way of humanizing this idea of what China is. Because you, when many people think about China, it's like oh, this like mysterious country in the east. That's I, I don't know, like this socialism country, whatever. But when you actually get to see what the you know part of the cooking culture is, what people eat, it kind of like starts to create and build this idea of what like maybe an actual Chinese person is. And I think that's like very important, or. Helps the rest of the world to understand the concept of China. So, is it soft power? Yes, Ash. But I like to use the term humanizing. I think it's a more accurate. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's. I think that's a really nice thought. And the the only thing I'll say to that is like the more regional you get, the more real that becomes. Right. And you know when you guys do a video and you say like this. City has this food because of like X, Y, and Z region doing to its like climate and history. That's much more. You, you get more of that humanizingness, right? When it's it's not talking about what a billion people eat, but like what this one city, which like you can see a little video of like some guy selling this particular dish on the street is doing. So I kind of want to. Yeah, for that. I think I think that's another uh, thing though that I think is the more that you you're in this kind of like food space, you know, within China, the more it's almost humbling just how much diversity that there is just within these borders that, yeah, even within something like Cantonese food, you know, people have this concept, okay, it's one of the eight big cuisines, Cantonese food is a cuisine, right? But then it's not the only cuisine within the Guangdong province, right? You have... Chaozhou cuisine, you have Kujiao cuisine, and even within Kujiao cuisine, you have different types. Types you have like the Dongjiang style, which is kind of for like around Huizhou. Then you have you know the Meizhou style, and they have different dishes. Even within Cantonese cuisine too, within this whole Pearl River Delta, if you go to Jiaoqing, which is you know where you know your mom's side is from, you know they're going to be having different dishes. You know some of their own special dishes than where we live right now, Shunda. So, yeah, I mean, it's something that like every single town has their own dishes here, and I don't know, it's a fascinating story. And I think lots of times people have this conception of China as 1.4 billion people all marching in lockstep against a despotic government. And yeah, I mean, no, it's not like that at all. And even if you just walk around from you know one place in the country to another, you're going to have very different uh, food, language, um, culture. culture. Yeah, Do you yeah. guys have thought the Bite of China series or other sort of like big, expensive like Tencent or CCTV productions that try to explore Chinese food? Um, because, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which they're trying to do that, but there also seem to certainly be kind of like other ulterior motives going on um, in the way they portray that um, uh, 
in the in the way they tell those stories. Oh, uh, I I like those series. Like I like all of them because they have uh, budgets, they have local connections, they have the resources to just go deep into places. But there's one thing I really don't like is that they really need to cut back on that like ASMR effect. It's very annoying. <laughs> yeah, the audio like every single time you have like a noodle that's going into the uh, into a bowl, it's like. You know, like splashing and <laughs> doing. It, it, I I can deal with that. Sometimes I need to mute it to just read the subtitles. Yeah. So I mean, my okay. I'll uh, just say my one beef is like sometimes there's a there's a the, the the thing that gets me uncomfortable about some of those is like the people that they're filming are so poor, um, and you mm-hmm. know there's a, there's a part of me which when I see these traditional techniques. And I see these old men who've been, you know, cutting the noodle or pounding whatever it is for 60 years of their life. I mean, it, it, it like there's something, I guess, like noble and cool about about this tradition. But it's a little less noble and cool when it's like because some guy only makes, you know, seven hundred dollars a year. And like this is how he has to survive. And, and sort of there's there's a part which I guess is kind of like ennobling and nice and like showing that what he does have mean has meaning. But um, I guess like showing that level of poverty and not kind of engaging with it as like a problem that needs to be dealt with um is something that i found frustrating about those yeah i guess um one of the things that i kind of feel though is that you do kind of need to interact with the idea that modern capitalism isn't exactly great for cuisine right that you know, lots of times you you have this person that is, you know, doing this kind of noodle that, you know, it's uh, an incredibly high quality way of doing it that, you know, yeah, they're not going to end up making a whole bunch of money from that. But, you know, a brand like Heidi Lau, which is a hot pot brand, uh, can make billions, billions, millions. Anyway, yeah. I don't know what their revenue is. Um, sure. Sure. Right. Um, you know, doing kind of like, you know, slapping together a hot pot based and it's something where industrialization is great, but at the same time, it also really has a way of really honestly killing a lot of kind of like food traditions. So I think that there's kind of a tension there. Like, yes, like what they're doing, um, they are poor, but at the same time, you know, I, capitalism isn't the answer. I'm not sure exactly how to put I, this. I think like here's the uh, two different dynamics. They are, uh, yes, they are poor, and they are they've been doing this for many years. That's because that's the only thing that they uh, know how to do, and they can use that skill to make money. Uh, but then that's that's also the only thing that they know how to do. So they are kind of limited to that. Uh, and now we are looking at them as, let's say, like city developers and as like from a food documentary perspective to look at only uh, their skills because we don't know. The outside world, other people don't know how to do it. And they are looking like kind of glorifying the skills uh but there's like it it's gonna it's gonna disappear though like the the food documentary is just basically like okay i'm we're just recording this 
But yeah, it. I think at current stage, kind of nobody knows how we can, you know, keep this tradition alive. Well, or like make their yeah. If you don't, better. if you don't film it, it's just gonna yeah. die. I mean, that's right. that's fair. And I think you know, hopefully, we'll all at some point live in a world where people can do crazy cooking experiments be, as YouTubers making, you know, 10 times as much of uh, what these people are able to make and like have the traditions live on in that way, as opposed to, um, you know, this be something that these people are sort of forced into doing because they um, have, you know, no other options and not good enough education to, you know, pursue uh, a different, potentially less, you know, difficult um, life path. Future plans for the channel? What what are your what are you guys' big dreams aside from uh aside from your uh your your multi-billion dollar uh Chipotle spin-off? Right. Uh let's see. We are aiming to have like a more permanent base here in Shunde like uh so that we can you know have a home base here and go to different smaller towns or even even village around China and live there for maybe three months, half a year, uh, to learn about what local food is like because traveling it's still very different from like when you're living there, when you're being able to go to the market every morning, when you can get to know the vendors. I think that that's ultimately the logical next step, you know, is that if we're doing, you know, a f- food from around the country, right? Like, I feel like we can do some very good job with Cantonese food uh, because we live here, right? We're in Chunda, and I can go to a restaurant, and I can order the stuffed chili that I'm going to be doing it uh, and order one of the best versions, and we can test against that, eat it, eat ours, and really compare and contrast, right? So ultimately, like, we do kind of feel like we need to uh, take the show on the road a little bit and, you know, go live in places like, you know, uh, smaller cities in Sichuan or Guizhou or Fujian or these kinds of places. So that's kind of like our, um, you know, upcoming uh, goal. We'll see. We'll see how that works. Um, and then I think long term, we also kind of want to really look at the food in the Southwest and then also extending into the highlands of, you know, Southeast Asia even, because some of the most interesting food, some of the most fascinating food for us is, um, you know, the food that is in the Southwest, Yunnan food, Guizhou food, Sichuan food. um, And all of that, that kind of like very interesting tradition extends down into uh, Southeast Asia into Laos and the Shan State in Burma and, you know, into, uh, you know, Northern Thailand. And, you know, I've been very blessed to live abroad my entire adult life. You know, Steph is from the PRD and, uh, has been living here. So, you know, eventually we do want to, um, you know, kind of be a little bit more mobile. Do you want to talk about making foreign food in China? Uh, making foreign making foreign food in China? Oh, like trying to make hamburgers? Yeah, and stuff? you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when you were when you lived here. I don't know. It wasn't that fun. Like I just ordered out almost all the time because <laughs> <laughs> it was cheap. I, I don't know. I mean, quarantine year, like I've been cooking a ton, but in China mm-hmm. or in Beijing at least, it's like there's just so much good food and it's so affordable, and I can order and it comes in 15 minutes. That I found. Yeah, I I actually looked really hard 
to find a Chinese cooking course, but the only ones I found were like for professional chefs that were five days a week or whatever. And, you know, they're mm-hmm. in the malls, like you can learn how to bake cakes and stuff. Um, but I f- thought it was really surprising that the there is like basically no ap- like millennial appetite in China for learning how to cook Chinese cuisine. Yeah, I think that that's definitely something that, you know, there is less of this kind of like, I don't know, food nerd culture, I would say, you know, it's kind of talking about what we were, you know, chatting about before where, um, yeah, there's not a lot of people really too interested in learning how to cook. You know, there's people that are interested in their subcultures interested in baking. Uh, there's cub- subcultures interested in craft beer or coffee, but there's not so much in terms of traditional Chinese cuisine. I think a lot of people just take it for granted, take it for granted, or they also, you know, they might just go to their parents and their parents just cook for them. Right. You know, that's the advantage when you have your parents living in, living in your house, taking care of your kids when, (laughs) when you're working, right. They can also cook a pretty good dinner and you don't have that necessary, necessarily that same imperative. I feel like this will come though. There's, there's, it's hard to imagine a future in which like folks don't have, don't start getting interested in this. Um, in a, in the same way that, you know, home cooking is now like a cool thing, like has become like a cool thing to do in the past 15 or so years in the West. There's a curve where, um, almost like an income curve where if you have a society where, you know, everybody is very kind of very poor, then everybody's cooking for themselves at home, right? And then, um, you know, if you're in the U.S., right, like everybody also is cooking for themselves at home because it's way too expensive to eat out, right? But then you have this kind of like middle dip, right, where, you know, it almost feels like, yeah, here, yeah, you can get really delicious food for really cheap, yeah. right? I think there are still some people that are interested in cooking, but it almost feels like, like baking is always the starting point. Uh, you started to uh, be interested in cooking, but then you don't necessarily uh, think about, oh, I want to make Chinese food because it's you know it's so common. But they will start to make get interested in. I want to make bread or I want to make cake, cookies, kind of thing. That may be a starting point, and from there it feels like the food nerd culture in China. It's more like, especially for the younger generation more focused on making things that are like Western food or maybe sometimes it's more like Japanese food. Uh, that's kind of more their focus would be because that's like some... It's exotic, I think it, yeah. It also has some... Yeah, it also something has to do with it's like you have so much developed resources on that. It's a lot easier to find legit resources to learn that. Instead of in Chinese, it's like... Yeah, your parents, uh, maybe your past experience. Um, yeah, some cookbooks. That's it. Yeah, what's surprising too is like, of course, most Chinese households don't have ovens. So, like, you like, there's like an upfront investment of like buying a convection oven or like going to a mall to take a class to start um, uh, to start baking in the first place. Yeah, it's it's a it's a trend though. Like when I started baking i was in high school there's nothing nothing i have this old cookbook that's like from the 80s uh that's compiled by like a chinese like it's in chinese it's a old chinese quote-unquote western cooking book 
recipe is actually legit. It's kind of the old style, old school recipe. Uh, yeah, that was like nothing. You you get nothing on how to, like, make baked stuff. Um, but then, if, especially the recent five years, I would say there's like a burst in Chinese domestic uh, markets that more and more people are into baking, and the brands or different factories companies are making small convection affordable ovens and people start to do that and because i think it's so different from traditional chinese cooking it's actually very interesting for chinese people to learn like oh this is how you do it interesting kind of thing i think that may also explains why people are more into that because yeah it's exotic it's new that makes a lot of sense different. just thinking about like how fun stir fry is because it's like so fast and like yeah you got to do all this stuff and then thinking about that from the other perspective of like oh like here's this like thing and you got to let it prove for this really long time and it's like this whole science experiment you got to measure everything out like i can you know i grew up with that right but seeing it from the other side you can see the appeal of it being something completely different because you know when you guys talk about your chinese recipes it's like yeah you put a little bit of this and a little bit of that and It'll probably end up working out, um, but that's completely not the case yeah. if you're looking at, you know, hydration levels of, of dough or whatever. Yeah, right. Chris and Steph, thanks so much for being a part of Chinese Talk. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Uh, Let's go.
Let's go， 双十八超感谢那天眷顾，九十九的路里百分之一天。富，春秋华人大唱线路，都是我的后爱人，在世界各地边。To my south window 搬将，锅里烧的发红，有碗烧的滚烫。To my south window 搬将，脚底抹了油，艾弗森的变相。Oh, my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over, and we're out of food. Great! Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get twenty dollars off your first order using the code Prepared Twenty. Now, the only thing to worry about is. Dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order thirty-five dollars. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.